everyone and welcome to episode 9 of Hints for Healing, a podcast where we discuss multidisciplinary work that contributes to the healing of children and young people with refugee experience. I want to acknowledge that I'm recording on the land of the Garingai people and I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land, to their ancestors, their elders, past, present and emerging, and I also acknowledge the injustice that they've experienced and continue to experience and I recognise their resilience in the face of this. I'd like to extend a special welcome to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in today. I'm Nicole Lur, a School Liaison Officer on the School Liaison Team at STARTS, which is the New South Wales-based service for the treatment and rehabilitation of torture and trauma survivors. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down to chat with my colleague and fellow School Liaison Officer, Rafiq Tanios. He's a trained secondary school teacher, and he's also TESOL qualified to teach English as an additional language. More recently, he trained as a filmmaker and a counsellor, and he has a wealth of experience in welfare and therapeutic work with children and young people in several multicultural settings. In today's podcast, you'll hear Rafiq talk about how his commitment to social justice, as well as his personal experiences of settlement in Australia, led to an interest in helping young people and educators understand cultural differences and widen their frames of reference. As Start's Specialist Rural and Regional School Liaison Officer, Rafiq also shares his observations of how working effectively with schools in more remote communities differs from work in capital cities. And he also shares how frameworks of intercultural learning and third space work influence his work with students with refugee experience. Rafiq, I've had the pleasure of working alongside you on the School Liaison team since 2018 and you clearly bring together aspects of your really diverse and varied professional background to your work at Starts. I was wondering if you could share some of that career pathway with us and perhaps highlight what led you to work with students with refugee experience? Thanks Nicole, I'd love to. And actually I think we overlap on many of our interests yeah. and, and um, kind of work practices so yeah, it's, it's a good team to be a part of. Um, so I completed a Bachelor of Education in the early 90s, and that was one of those degrees for the first time where you had to major in your, um, I guess, discipline areas that you would teach and also uh, major in education um, on, in two kind of majors. You had to do kind of the psychology of education and the sociology of education. So for me... Um, the sociology of education and um, I did a major in, in race history mm. was really helpful in helping me understand, I, I guess, social justice issues and um, gave me a bit of a, an interest, I think, in focusing on people who have minority experiences or don't, don't benefit from some of the systems that are designed for really the host culture. Uh, so that was my initial training and um, after working in Cabramatta for a good uh, nearly I think two years I realised that I needed, uh, I was trained as an English history and some other disciplines teacher and I realised that teaching literature wasn't the skill that I needed to work with 
you know, young people with refugee experience. Uh, it was a, it was a it was a Department of Education funded program that worked with what they called at risk youth, mm. and in Cabramatta that translated to learners with refugee experience. And so I did a TESOL qualification, and I was really lucky because at the time the TESOL qualifications were based in the Sydney School of Linguistics which had a sociolinguistic model of understanding language. So they looked at language as a resource. Mm. And so grammar was really about whatever vernacular you had. So you could, you could be a speaker of English from a marginalised community, and that was a language in its own right. Mm. You didn't have to, um, for your purposes of living, you didn't have to access the vernacular of, let's say, education. So it was, that was really helpful in making visible issues of power and and you know how kind of the center is for a particular group of people that doesn't always encompass the needs of people on the on the fringes yeah. on the periphery and also I got a few skills in teaching English as a language rather than as literature yeah so um, yeah that I did that for about nine years in Cabramatta working in circuit breaker and at-risk programs um, doing a little bit of I guess what you would call homework help kind of support, like running some language groups after school where I was the primary teacher, but doing a lot of mediation and advocacy and working with young people where they came across intersections of difficulty either with discipline systems in schools or with challenges with policing or other areas. Yeah. So, so that was, I was working in the ecology of challenges that young people with refugee experience faced. Mm -hmm. So in schools, with, you know, in the community, and sometimes, you know, accompanying a young person to court or to the police station or dealing with a Centrelink issue. So most of the work was all about the systems that were impacting on young people. And, and, those and on their schooling. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. On schooling and, and I guess just opportunities because mm. You know, some really simple examples. I remember one, when I first went into one of the schools, they would say, oh, these young young people, they're not really, you know, interested in becoming Australians. They just watch Vietnamese and speak Vietnamese. And so there was those kind of narratives that really didn't see the strength or the challenges young people face. And at the time, it was just the focus was at-risk behaviour and finishing post-compulsory schooling. There was no talk about trauma. So... And I wasn't aware of the internal world either, professionally or personally, about what impacted on young people who'd had refugee experiences. So most of the work was, was with systems, mm. trying to help young people understand the cultural differences and how to be effective in, you know, an English-speaking British heritage cultural context and, and trying to work with schools on, I guess, widening their frame of reference and understanding the experiences of young people. Mm. And where do you gain those insights from on, you know, the value of home language and staying connected and all that? I think, look, that's developed over time and I don't know if it was very strong in me at that, at that point, but what I did understand was the obstacles. Mm. Um, and I understood that, I think, because of my own personal journey with my family so I had some insights into how my own parents collided with systems as I observed them do that mm. and or cultural differences and then the other aspect was just you know once you listen to 
the perspective of a young person about an issue and then you listen to the let's say the school representative you can see where they haven't really understood what's actually happened so after doing all that welfare work so i know you've also worked as a counselor overseas and done some film work as well yeah so um, I worked in Cabramatta in these Department of Education funded programs for about nine years and then the, the funding stopped because they saw the, the needs as being more a federal, I think, responsibility because most of the young people who were getting the support were often, you know, new arrivals or um, people who'd been here for six years or less. And um, uh, I, I just started doing some uh, um, project work, so just freelancing and a lot of that work was with young like Aboriginal young people with Bernardos and Islander young people in Belmore with um, the Youth Resource Centre there and I just started doing different projects and I always had an interest in film and video mm. and I found that uh, so, so I retrained while I was doing this consulting work in film and video and because I always found video a really useful tool for capturing the perspectives of young people. Um, I would I found that when I would show what a young person said on video to another person, whether it was a school or an institution, um, because of my rapport and relationship, I was able to allow them to express things that other people perhaps weren't privy to. Mm. And and so, yeah, so I started using film and video as, as probably the primary tool of, um, of engagement with young people and for young people to tell their stories. And... And I did that for about um, four or five years before um, before I kind of retrained again and did a counselling qualification um, and then took up the role as a school counsellor in um, the Australian school in in um, Indonesia, in Jakarta. Yeah. yeah. I know you came to starts as the rural and regional school liaison officer um, because working with remote communities was this new frontier for you that you wanted to explore. So what motivated you to seek that challenge out? So, yeah, um, after, after returning from Jakarta, and I guess for me it was the first time I was working with the internal world, so it's, it's a skill set I never had. And in Jakarta at the Australian School, it, I was a new counsellor, so it wasn't an environment where there was much collegiate support. There weren't, there weren't many other counsellors I could rub shoulders with. Mm or professionals who are mental health professionals to seek some support or supervision. So I think I found my skills quite limited that, you know, I was able to do brief counselling and work with grief and loss mm. and adjustment disorders, but not really anything more than that was a little challenging. And I really didn't really understand trauma and uh, its impact on, you know, the nervous system and on individuals and families. So after returning to Sydney. Uh, I worked as a TAFE teacher teaching community services and welfare and that was the right fit and it also gave me some time to I guess seek my own therapy as well because at that stage in my life there were a few challenges that were appearing including you know limited health um, issues and and other things from from childhood experiences came up for me. Mm -hmm. So uh, my partner encouraged me at one point to get back into working with, you know, people with refugee experience and I looked at a position at starts and I wasn't really sure, to be honest. It was, mm. 
I wasn't really sure where I was going. But after um, joining Starts, the School Liaison Program came up, I think within three or four months of me starting. And that was really exciting for me because that was something that spoke to me. It was something that spoke to, you know, I guess the past 20 years. And I felt like this this is what I want to do. I work with the internal world with people with refugee experience because mm-hmm. I haven't had a chance to do that. And Starts is such an amazing organisation in terms of its the richness of people's experiences and disciplines. And you can you can find so many people that you can have a chat with that will really assist you and, you know, the amount of professional development we're exposed to. So it was just like accidental, I think, that 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 happened I because I was a bit lost. The team, yeah, the well, team. That is, yeah. yeah. So it's just the end of two sixteen I started, and then two seventeen, mm. and so after I applied for that role, uh, I was I was told I could pick whichever, you know, if I want to work in Fairfield or Blacktown or mm. regional, and so that was again a really exciting aspect of it because I I hadn't ever done any regional work, and so. I, th- I thought oh, I'm a bit tired of Fairfield I've worked here for 10 years and it felt so same so yeah so I, I asked for the regional role and what are some of the ways that working in a rural or regional community differs from working in a capital city okay so I guess there's a personal and professional dimension for me in terms of how that played out so mm. definitely you know, I was aware that this is new and I haven't done this before. So that was an asset in terms of just being curious and open mm. to how things work. And what I discovered was people are much more connected or seem to be much more connected in regional areas. So there's a lot of local knowledge and local relationship you have to respect when you go in. You can't you can't be the person from Sydney who thinks they know stuff. You've got to just be open and curious and... I guess, I mean, I guess it applies to everything, but you need to be willing not to have an agenda, but to be able to just listen and observe and see what's, what, what are the issues that present here. And they present differently in different regions. So I was very fortunate to be put in contact with some really amazing, you know, human beings who were professionally involved with learners with refugee experience, but also personally invested. And that's something I think that's... Um, a little bit more intense in regional areas that because people live and work in the same community you see um, or what, what I observed was much greater investment and so you see things like you know vicarious trauma and burnout more significantly and I think that's a function of lack of resources and you also see much stronger and intimate relationships between um, staff and between communities and the people who are servicing those communities. I think one of the other aspects is for the clients we work with, it's a much smaller pond, so there can be challenges for people who don't quite fit in that pond or whose life situations, particularly you know, young women perhaps who's, who are challenging traditional gender roles or who just mm. want to step outside of you know, perhaps what other people think should be their destined role or behaviour. So for those communities, it's a bit more difficult because the pond is small and once you um, get a reputation or a label, Mm. it's hard to survive in that pond. So I think the the, the context of regional services for 
in learners with refugee experience in schools, there's a lot of positives. There's more intimacy, more genuine, sometimes engagement, um, sometimes better integration because people are more connected and yeah. become part of a community. But there are also quite a few resources that aren't there that you can't depend on and, and a smaller pond and, uh, and, and, of course, things like burnout and vicarious yeah, trauma. Sure. Okay. So um, when I've heard you talk in the past, like professional learning and, and team meetings um, where I've heard you speak at, um, you've referred to um, the concept of intercultural learning and how that influences your approach to work with schools and with school communities. So I was wondering if you could explain for me again what that is and, and what its benefits are. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, intercultural learning is... Um something I came across uh, when I was in Jakarta and it was so I walk into this role as a school counsellor and the head of school sends me all of the discipline problems so any young person who's been in trouble gets sent to the counsellor and I wasn't quite sure what to do with that because that's a really that's a really poor uh, pathway yeah. or introduction to someone who's supposed to build trust and rapport and work with your mm. your inner world and and be non-judgmental and therapeutically involved in very intimate mm. kind of things. So it was a very unusual position to be in. So the best way I could flip that was just to collect data. So every person who came to me, I just would interview. And then I looked at the data and there was a pattern. And the pattern was that um, mostly Korean young men were being sent to me. And often when I looked at the issues, there was a disconnect between their understanding of what a role of a learner and a teacher is. And also it reflected a disconnect between the teacher's understanding of what they, what the students, the learners believed their role was yeah. and what they themselves invisible beliefs they had about teaching and learning. So um, for many, to, to generalize, for many of the Australian teachers, uh, they had a kind of friendly but not a friend, lots of humor, um, knock about humour sometimes, and a casual kind of classroom atmosphere. And Korean, the Korean learners that I was interviewing, who had come from Korea, were used to a very hierarchical, formal, paternal and caring relationship mm. that was mostly firm. And it would only enter areas of humour outside of the classroom. That was not appropriate in classroom. So there was this sort of disconnect in terms of what my role is and what the teacher's role is and the teacher thinking that some of these young men were deliberately being disrespectful when they were just reading the cues differently because that and using the schemas they had from their cultural systems right yeah that makes sense so so there was these two different schemas and um yeah basically became a year-long project of thinking about orientation strategies for for teachers and for learners and i needed a methodology and so I did a bit of research because I, I hadn't been trained in in doing that kind of work. And I found that um, there was already a kind of a framework in place um, that was at the, the Melbourne Convention on the Goals of Schooling. And so there was a whole framework that was part of education oh. and a framework that was used in Europe. And it was intercultural learning. Right. And I married that with um, Homi, Homi Baba's um, kind of perspectives on... Um, um, you know, um, third space work. And so, yeah, I had a really clear model that I could use in my work with young people and in my work with teachers 
to begin to have conversations about a two-way relationship. And in, an, and in a place like uh, an expatriate sort of location like Jakarta, I think there's much more freedom than when I think about Australian schools and, and an Australian school in Jakarta, Indonesia, in a different location. It's like Australian teachers were open to, more open mm. to accept two ways of doing things. Oh, so it was a kind of um, freer environment, I guess, for yeah. an intercultural engagement between learners and teachers. So what did it look like on the ground once you could see some of those concepts being taken up by teachers and students? I think what that looks like, first of all, it starts with um, being very explicit, which is part of a TESOL training, about your invisible expectations and beliefs. But it also looks like clarifying what we mean by, what do we mean by concepts such as learning? What do we mean by student? What do we mean by teacher? Because for some of the learners, teacher, you know, I remember one young person saying to me, I don't ask questions. I said, well, why didn't you ask the teacher? I don't ask questions. Teacher asks questions. Mm. So in, in that person's mind, the template for a teacher is someone who asks questions, not a, not a student. If you go to Australian teachers, they see it as a sign of engagement and intelligence if you ask questions. Yeah. So I think um, actually most of the work with, with was with young people. And it was really about clarifying what do we mean by what do they mean by student? What do they mean by teacher? And what does that look like? And, and so they would come up with all of these, I guess, behaviours and practices mm -hmm. and beliefs about teachers and learners and then present that to the Australian teachers mm -hmm. and say, well, this is the perspective here. So it was just that beginning of eye-opening respect for a different position. Um, I was only there for two and a half years, so it took about a year to get the project off the ground. So we didn't get a, a real opportunity to evaluate its effectiveness. But anecdotally, um, in my interviews with, with young people, I could see, um, you know, significant progress on their part when they were able to clarify the systems, the invisible mm. systems that they held mm. and begin to see that this may not be the same yeah. as a system in your school. And have you been able to continue working with that framework here in New South Wales? Yeah, it's just become part of my practice. It yeah. just gives me a model for um, any sort of inter-community issue. And so it comes up a lot, for example, with SSLOs in schools. And often they're reproducing, I think, their own childhood experiences of schools on the communities that they're supporting, the same language groups in a school which is sometimes at odds with the school's values and practices. And what I found is, yeah, it's different for different places, but, you know, recently just talking through some of the challenges some of the young people had because I think understanding the values in Australian education mm. is a significant... That's a journey that has to be made quite explicit because what schools believe are good parents are very different in different communities to what they believe schools should be doing, you know? It's like Vietnamese, a lot of the Vietnamese um, young people I worked with with refugee experiences, the school was like the place where they would, it was believed they would learn good morals, mm -hmm. good behaviour. So when when a, a young person went off the rails, the family thought the school was the person who was managing that, not just them. Whereas often in Australian schools, the perspective is, oh, here's the problem your child has presented, you deal with it. And there's that concept is very foreign you know, it's, it's, it's not really um, part of the schema for many of the communities we work with. 
And there was another framework you referred to, third space work. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I do that a lot in my private practice. It's, it's really about, um, I guess, making explicit where you sit mm. in your knowledge systems and beliefs and values. And then you begin a process of identifying where another person sits. And that's distinct to your own values and beliefs. So there may be similarities, but you're really focused on where are the differences. And the idea is then to have a conversation that means in the future, you no longer look like yourself or like the other person you can ever, but you become a hybrid, I guess, of two ways of thinking. And I think that's just a, a kind of, you know, I think for many of us who've grown up uh, in Australia, in a context of a, a different language being spoken at home and a different cultural system at home, it's like having two parents. You, you have the home parents and then you have the societal or institutional parents at school. So you have these two ways of engaging with the world and you have to be able to switch. To be effective, you have to be able to code switch. Yeah. And there's not much mentoring or support around that. There's not much, un well, in my experience, there hasn't been. And I, whenever I work with young people therapeutically, and, you know, focus on trauma and first phase trauma therapy, looking at the body and how to gain control. But I always find there's always a need for, I guess, a narrative to allow them to make sense of the different worlds that they live in mm. and to be able to make some choices that are useful for them. Because often what happens is the school can't see that other world you live in and expects you to conform. And the parental support or the community support becomes a little bit disempowered mm -hmm. and expects you to conform in an extreme way often they yeah. reproduce the cultural values at like a much more controlled level mm -hmm. than you know mm -hmm. it doesn't have any room for evolution and so I think what often presents for young people is this really disjointed and confused and very little recognition of the benefits of being adaptable and and living between two cultures and yeah, being part of that third space. Spot on. Yeah, yeah finding a way to choose mm. which parts of the two worlds you would like to keep. Mm. So in our in the wider culture, you know, you know, the dominant powerful narratives are about just assimilating and adopting, I guess, a British heritage, mm. what we call Australian framework of social norms. Mm. And so you can lose some of the 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 good things that perhaps are useful to your identity and who you are and um that's something um i really struggled with for a very long time and and i think just some childhood experiences of um being unsafe at home and being unsafe out in the world um you know made me do things that now i look back on and think oh, i wish i had the mentoring and the support that i now understand and i can hold on to Mm. to be a much more integrated person. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned to me you came to Australia as a, a very young child um, from Egypt. So do you remember what aspects of school life helped you feel that sense of belonging um, and maybe what aspects worked counter to that at school? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so mine, you know, my parents arrived when I was two, so... I say I was force, forcefully displaced from mm. my ancestral home. Yeah. You know, you discover yourself in this body. Everyone reacts to this body, and you quite don't quite know what it is. And mm. it is about 
the body. And, and, you know, if you don't have the protective factors at home, then you're vulnerable to to injury and to trauma um, out in the world, right? Mm. Because I experienced a lot of, um, I guess, racial violence in the early years. I think I was one of the only um, in the school I was at. I remember being called Blackie um, because, yeah, I just stood out like a sore thumb. And, and so those pivotal experiences as a child really disconnected me from education and from teachers but I was really lucky in high school it's Mm. because it's relational right I mean at the end of the day it's someone can see you Mm. and see see you not in a negative way and I I just had a fantastic teacher in from year 9 to 12 an English teacher who just made me feel like he saw me and that really profoundly connected me right how did he do that oh he's just such a warm guy he's an American Mm. bloke and he would see me and say, hey, Rafiq, come over mm-hmm. here, tell me a story. And he just showed a new real interest. And, mm. and I, you know, I started becoming first in English wow. because I was so engaged yeah. by, by this teacher. And he was a really smart guy as well. He knew how to teach well. And mm. he was um, just, just a very warm human being, Mr. Tedford. Mm. I don't know if you can yeah, include that, right? Mm. So anyway, um, so he, yeah, so it was a really positive experience for me. That that definitely connected me. But I think overwhelmingly, my experiences in schooling were were initially really negative until perhaps um, you know later high school, and um, I think you know that's not everyone's story. And people who have been exposed to some of the stuff I was exposed with didn't end up with the same challenges or, or yes. difficulties. Yeah, and so many variables. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's all to do with the protective factors. I mm. think if kids have one or two people who can really see them mm. and look after them and, and provide them with a narrative to help them through things and normalise stuff, then they'll get through it, yeah. right? And so, yeah, at the end of the day, it's the same thing in, I think, the schools I go to. It's when, when the relational engagement is stronger than the institutional engagement Mm. you start to see recovery for children and young people because there's understanding they're a human they're at the center of the process not the process at the center and it's that displacement of process at center to human Mm. at center that really causes the the problems for the Mm. young people because the systems aren't designed the processes aren't designed for the type of experiences the young people we work with have had you know trauma Mm. in childhood that results in a frazzled nervous system that results in a perceptual bias towards survival that Mm. results in this complexity and survival bias and they don't have that relational grounding Mm. if they don't have that in a in a school with teachers with human beings the processes just serve to push them further away yeah i was thinking now about you having those positive experiences right at the end of your your school student career there and then you elected to study secondary um, teaching is there a link there yeah definitely yeah. I think um, yeah so and what were you hoping to be able to do with that qualification it didn't end up being used you know directly for teaching but what, what were you hoping at the time well I think there were two things one was um, you know with that English teacher, it was such a positive relationship. It made me see something human about teaching. Mm. So it was a misplaced, I think, assessment. You know, it's not the norm, right? So this guy created such a positive relationship with me that I used to want to go to class because 
I liked being mm. there because I was seen, uh, I would learn. And so that was something I thought I could reproduce as a teacher. It sort of captured me. Mm. Um, and I think deep down inside me, I've, you know, I've got some personal attributes and the professional attributes after completing qualifications that position me as someone who can explain things or distill mm. complex things into discrete, understandable units. So I have a capacity for creating learning experiences. Mm -hmm. I, it's something that's something inside me and, um, and explaining things and analysing things and really thinking about the bits that make up a big thing. So I think yes. it just sort of connected with some personal attributes and yeah, and then I got, nice. you know, when you learn learning theory and mm. you learn how to design educational experiences, mm. it comes useful in everything really, yeah, you know. So yeah. it's, I've never really lost um, the training and the preparation as a teacher. It's yeah. always, I think of myself deep inside, there's part of me that's very big still. I, I wouldn't say a teacher, I say as an educator or someone interested in learning because I don't like some of the structures, you know, yeah. building D, building F, <laughs> you know, bells, all of that stuff <laughs> yeah. comes across as prison, right? Not as, not as a, a happy <laughs> place, right? The two that places way. that you can keep people, compulsory yeah. schools and yeah. prison, and both of them have block Ds and block True. Fs, and they have big gates, and they have alarms that move people oh, around. Yeah. And so there's yeah. all of that stuff that's mm. inherited from the past that's yeah. just, you know, we're stuck into these kind of vestigial organs that we don't really need you know it, learning can be such a rich experience if it's relational and if, if the environment mm. is supportive mm. to it yeah you know um so education still i think at the center of my belief in social justice that you can if you can get schools to be places where everyone is present mm. where it's not them and us where it's me and you and it's us and people's stories are validated and listened to yeah. and different ways of being, different ways of doing, different ways of knowing are encouraged, mm. right? You actually create the community for the future where people yeah. get on with each other. So And where they expect to be seen if they've had those experiences in their early years. As that seemed to be the big difference for you for the first time you were seen at school for who you were and, and appreciated. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's that I guess it's that concept of attachment, mm. you know, it's, it's at the centre of all of these things that um, if you're seen, if you're responded to, if, you're, if you feel that your voice is heard, yeah. if it's consistent, mm. then it starts to, you know, change your nervous system because yeah. you feel like a human being, you feel seen, mm. you feel valued, you feel like you belong there. Yeah, and you expect safety rather than threat. Yeah. yeah. So in, in addition to this um, rich background in education, um, you've also referred to your, um, your experience in the making of short films. And I did watch um, two of your films from 2005, um, Inside Out, Cabramatta and Cabramatta, I Live Here. And I'll, I'll put links to those in the show notes for the listeners. So when I watched Inside Out, Cabramatta, it was so striking um, how much people's opinions of Cabramatta and of the people of Cabramatta um, how much they vary depending on whether or not they were residents. So as of course you know in the film the residents had very favourable views of their community whereas those who hadn't even visited Cabramatta but had been exposed to lots of negative media reports um, had very negative views. 
Um, so while I watched it, it just felt so clear to me that the Cabramatta residents were so acutely aware of how their community was perceived by broader Sydney. I was wondering if you could give some insight on um, the impact that that might have had on participants. I'm not sure if they shared that with you in more detail off screen. Or, yeah. yeah, well, thanks for watching the, those oh, very old films. Enough. And um, yeah, it was a real, it was a real, that was a real changing life-changing experience um that project because what i did was i i was supposed to represent cabramatta's identity from the perspective you know of an art you know an artistic perspective and i had to work with two other artists um and i'd already worked in cabramatta for 10 years so it was like revisiting something that i i always wanted to do tell a story about cabramatta and whether I'm the right person to do that, nobody ever questioned that at the time. It would be a bit different <laughs> today, I think, because we, we recognise that nothing, you know, about us without us kind of principle. And really, I'm I'm not from Vietnamese heritage, although I, you know, my partner's Vietnamese heritage and had mm. the refugee. But uh, what I when I listened to people's stories, um, so I met with a lot of adults and then to different community groups, and then I started working with some young people and um, I actually don't think before we did that that they were really aware how about how Cabramatta was represented they had us oh, okay. there some of them had a bit of a, a sense mm. but what I did was I went outside Cabramatta first and I hired someone and he asked me to go to his his where he lived and we went there we interviewed people about Cabramatta and 99% of the responses were universally based on perceptions of Cabramatta as an Asian ghetto, a place of gangs and violence. And um, and all of that was through um, news media. Now, if you've worked in Cabramatta for 10 years, you realise that there's only like, it's only the skin of the surface, like it's only 1% of the population who feel that kind of perspective, you know, that kind of description. And everyone else is incredibly friendly and law-abiding, mm -hmm. right? So it's really upside down. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I took the rushes back, which are the raw video, and I showed it to the young people. And then when they were exposed to that, they wanted to interview each other about what, and that's really like the group of kids I was working with. They just set up a stand in Freedom Plaza mm -hmm. and they just, anyone who walked by, they called them in mm -hmm. and they asked them, the same questions we asked of people outside of Cabramatta. Yeah. What do you think of Cabramatta? What connects you to Cabramatta? And it was just beautiful what we got from them. Mm. It was just like, it just it's so human that yeah. people like to live where they can get their food, mm -hmm. where they can get talk to other people, they can meet their friends, they can get doctors and people who understand their needs and language and they can get the sort of spices that they need. And, yeah. and it was just so All simple. All very relatable. All yeah. very relatable, yeah. yeah. And so... Yeah, it was um, what became clear to me was that, um, yeah, Cameron is no different to anywhere else. It's just, um, you know, it's, the, it's those narratives we've inherited from the past, this sort of siege mentality from white Australia about, mm. you know, Asian ghettos, mm. right? Because there's a concentration of people who look the same, which is so deeply paranoid, you know, that people think because a group of people who speak the same language live near each other. And that's always the first phase because these people were displaced. Yeah. 
And the first phase is to make the environment as safe as you can, which must resemble home. Mm. And a second generation is always the generation that speaks English. Mm. But you need that first generation to create the safety. And what I found about Cabramatta, it was a really safe place, a place where people felt attachment because they felt safe, they were able to be seen, they were able to speak their language, they were able to do the things that felt safe and normal and healthy for them to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful project and, yeah. and I've heard since that there's more films that you've um, been involved in so I look forward to watching them too and sharing them with our listeners. Rafiq, it's been really interesting talking to you today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we finish up? No, thanks very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Rafiq.